0: As we come back together this morning, we continue our study in Romans, and I want to make uh, just a couple of prefatory comments. We are in the midst of Romans 6, about to head into the richness of Romans 7 and 8. But I want to remind us that the point of the book, the reason this thing is all put together, is centrally Paul's desire. To see the church in Rome gathered together. Gathered together uh, in a way that breaks down the walls that the world puts up. And the reason that the doctrines of grace that are found in this book are so fundamental is that it's only in an unconditional loving God who gave himself and gave his people his own righteousness that real cross-cultural ministry that the the walls can be broken down because if we are left to do the math to try and figure out if our version of god is better or where we come from is a privileged position that gives us a little bit more oomph and a little bit higher status in the church anything that we bring into our relationships within the community of faith from the world that our means by which we understand our significance and God's relationship with us will be detrimental to the ability of the church to be what Paul regularly tells us it can and should be, which is a body, a unified body, working together, clearly different, clearly having different roles and gifts and abilities And yet, nonetheless, one part is not greater than the other. And so it is this drive that gives Paul the uh, impetus to make sure that in the first couple of chapters, we understand God has a reason for judging people. Because all people, Jew and Gentile, fall short of the glory of God. All of them have a desire to be their own God. All have sinned. And therefore, God is in the right to judge both Jew and Gentile. And that when he does, he will use his righteous character as the only legitimate standard by which we will be judged. And whether that is in the common grace revelation in all of creation, that all of us have a tendency to hide from, the knowledge of God is there for us and yet we twist it and we hide from it or whether it was revealed in the law of god on mount sinai in the revelation to moses and what followed doesn't matter which way god reveals himself his character and his nature it is always his character and his nature that is the standard the bar can never be lowered and so we are in the midst now in six of understanding how our union with Christ in his death and resurrection is our only hope to deal with the just standard of God and therefore create an opportunity to count one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're in chapter 6, verses 5 through 11 this morning. Hear now God's word. For if we have been unified with him in his death, Like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. or reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ, alive to God in Christ Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, what a delight to read words with such power to transform all of creation, to renew the human heart, and to put us again on a road of life and light, a road that is presided over, and accompanied uh, by you, we ask, Lord, that we would walk in that road, walk in that newness of life, and delight in your presence. And whatever is said this morning that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. Amen. And so I give that summary uh, because what we're going to have to do uh, in reflection of time is move pretty quickly through verses, again, that are so rich and could be spoken of uh, for many, many days and have thousands and thousands of pages written about them. But I want to start in verse 11 and work our way back up through because it is important to learn how to do the math of the kingdom of God. It is not adequate enough to approximate or to guesstimate or estimate the math when it comes to The work of God. I am uh, pretty good at estimating certain kinds of household math, uh, but there are limitations. And at some point, if you estimate for too long without ever actually doing the real math, you can find yourself in a rather significant deficit. Very rarely do I find myself in a place of great abundance because I have estimated or approximated. There is a reason I estimate and approximate, It, it usually makes me feel a little better because I'm, I'm somewhat concerned that if I actually did the real math, I might be unnerved by what the real numbers are. If I have an idea in my head that it's around X, that's a little different than finding out it really is Y. Now, thankfully, artists deals with real numbers, and so when I do occasionally look in, I find that Y is more than it would have been if I had just continued to approximate. The reason this is important is that unless we do the math and the Greek word here really is add this up, add up what Christ has done on your behalf and put that against the reality of sin and brokenness. And the real math is far more powerful than you and I ever imagined. The problem often is we look around at the world and we see the power of death. We see the pandemic. We see cancer. We see racism. We see centuries-old difficulties rising up again in places all around the world. We see the power of death. We see the power of sin. We see how often we give in to temptation. And we think, man, this must have been a really close fight. Like approximation, Christ defeating sin and death. Thank goodness, and he just got across the line, because my stars, it looks like death had won. They nailed him to a cross, and we thought, well, will he get up tomorrow? But he he just squeaks through. Now, in our sober moments, we know that it wasn't really close, but Paul is saying we must really keep doing the math, because any time we begin to upgrade the power of death and sin and downgrade what it means for the second person of the Trinity to be made flesh— and to nail and this is the thing right we think jesus got nailed to the cross but according to what paul is saying in this passage it was actually death that is to say when he took death our death and sin on himself and when in other places paul talks about making a spectacle of the princes and principalities of this world, there is a real way that the shame of death is that it thought it was standing there putting the nails in and it was putting nails in its own hands. That death was actually shown to be as weak as it really was and is in relation to the actual power of the creator of the universe. It wasn't even close. Death and sin, in the irony and the wonderful reality of the gospel, it looks like Jesus is defeated and humiliated. And yes, he was willing to do that. But in light of the glory of the Father and the power of love and the power of God's righteousness, it was actually death that was nailed to the cross and died. So that when we died with Christ, our death died. And when you come through the other side, there will no longer be death and sin with you. Because it will have been killed. It will have been removed. It will have been defeated. Do the math. It's better than you can possibly, possibly imagine Paul is not talking here about how you earn life after death, how you can end up in a nicer place rather than a less nice place. He's not talking about how you might exist as a shade. Nobody was talking about resurrection the way that Jewish folks had, and certainly not as powerfully and dramatically as Paul was saying, as he reflected on the power of Jesus's resurrection. This is life after death this is life after the defeat of death this is not an existence in a shaded world it is a renewed world do the math if we have died with the second person of the trinity how much more so is that more than sufficient to give us life not only here for all of eternity the math is not even close when we have theological conversations about was Christ's sacrifice adequate for the sins of the world or sufficient it wasn't even close how God chooses to dispense his mercy and his grace is his business but the question of whether or not it was sufficient for the whole world is in light of the math laughable it isn't even close Yes, for us, sin and death are powerful. But in Christ, we know that the one who defeated sin and death on our behalf has given us light. And that's the math Paul wants us to keep doing. He wants us to work back through this reality that we have died with Christ and therefore we were raised with Christ. And the Body that he received, and the physical world that he walked around in, and how he had fellowship with his believing brothers and sisters, and broke bread and made breakfast, and was the same but different, is what we are becoming, and what you and I are even now in a God who is not limited by our sense of past, present, and future. You are alive in Christ. The math was not even close. To be in Christ is to be an eternal living being reflecting the glory of God. No longer subject to death and sin. Subject to. Annoyed by, plagued, harassed, sure. But not subject to. Not subject to. So, for this week, my encouragement, are there ways that, yes, you do underestimate your sin? Because one of the uh, other points that I could preach in a longer sermon is that one of our broken ideas is that, yes, we can underestimate God's power, but we can also sometimes underestimate our sin because that means we don't need as much of God's power. If we have a small God, we have a small view of sin. I need a little help because I'm a little off kilter. For us, our sin is death, something we could not defeat. So we need a bigger God. And that sin is deeper and more profound than we usually take credit for. Hence the first four chapters of Romans. We can even mess up the law and take pride in the very thing that should bring us Peace and humility with God? What ways do you underestimate your sin? And then, of course, which ways do you overestimate your sin? When do you give sin power over you that it doesn't have? When do you think that you're subject to sin rather than harassed by sin? How are you under, I mean, sorry, how are you overestimating your sin? And then lastly, how do you underestimate God's work through Christ? It is doing that math, being overwhelmed, reflecting on the power of God in the Psalms where it's so clear that it wasn't even close, that it couldn't have ever been in doubt, that when Jesus says, if there is any other way, that is a recognition of the pain and the suffering that, And what will be an unfathomable break and loss between he and the father on our behalf. But it's not a question of whether or not the fight was ever going to come out any differently. It's a recognition of the weight of what Jesus did. Not a question of the power of what it accomplished. In what ways do you and I underestimate God's work through Christ? If we do the math, Christ is more than sufficient. It puts the power of sin and death in their proper context, and it allows the light and love of God to fill us in a way that creates new life, that creates new community. It is another important doctrinal truth, another piece of this thing that Paul is building called the community of faith by the Holy Spirit. It is one more truth that makes that absolutely secure, that when we do the math in Christ, it allows me to be a person of life and to put sin in its proper context, something trodden under the foot and the reign of the king who is here and who is coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. Lord, we thank you that you are one who has won an overwhelming victory. And we ask that as we contemplate our own brokenness and sin, which we are right to do, that it is always recognizing that your love and grace was so overly sufficient, so prodigal, so lavish that we can rest, that you are a God who has saved and brought life.